I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians this morning. To the book of Philippians in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, our text will be found on uh, page 980 in the Pew Bible, which you can find in the Pew Rack in front of you. And we're in between two series right now. We just finished our series on Samson. And uh, next week we will start a study on selective Proverbs, looking at wise words uh, to live by and to use God's Word as a way to uh, communicate truth and wisdom uh, to our lives. We need it. And we just finished up a series where a guy could have used a whole lot more information and, inf- uh, and wisdom uh, had he been humble enough to do so. We studied the life of Samson. One of the things that compelled uh, me to preach the message I'm going to preach today is in studying Samson and his life, one thing that continued to pop out to me in those chapters of the book of Judges that contains Samson's life is that Samson was a solitary figure. He lived life, he did life on his own. A very uh, quick uh, uh, picture of uh, some involvement by his mom and dad, which he pushes off at the beginning of the story. There is no involvement of godly individuals speaking into Samson's life and Probably one of the biggest reasons why Samson's, Samson runs in to the troubles he does is he doesn't have a good group of friends, a community around him that would show him the way to live. And because of that, Samson fails to live up to his potential. It is a bit ironic that the only time in Samson's life that a group of people gather around him for his good is at the end of Samson's story after he has uh, pushed the two pillars uh, off of their foundations and caused the building to collapse, killing more than 3,000 Philistines and Samson himself. The last words that we hear about are Samson's family and some of his friends coming, taking his body and burying it. And so here's a picture of an Old Testament man who is empowered by God to do incredible things. He had incredible strength. But he lacked a community of people around him that would help him to make godly and wise decisions and and would help him to not fall prey to the devil's attacks. And so I want to talk on that subject this morning. And I want you to pull out your uh, bulletin insert that has the sermon outline on it. And I'm going to do something that's going to bring joy to your hearts on this holiday weekend. So go ahead and pull that outline out. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to take points two three, and four, and we're going to scratch them out. Hallelujah. Okay? I'll turn into Baptist yelling amen, all right? We're going to get rid of them. The Lord, after I wrote my sermon, I, and, and some of you ask how, how my study goes uh, on Saturday nights because uh, I can go on wild tangents. I, I always write a manuscript uh, of my sermon just to kind of center my thoughts, and I got done. I said, that, that is a great sermon But the Lord seemed to impress upon my heart, that's not what I want you to share this morning. And that scares the daylights out of a pastor. I came down, I told Amanda, I think I just wasted all my Saturday writing the sermon because I don't think the Lord wants me to preach it. And I know the Lord will use it another time, but what I want to do is center our thoughts on my first point and then some points to ponder. And what I want to do is take those, and and if you have these thoughts of grandeur that we're going to get out early, you should know me better than that. 
Um, the Lord's got a lot to say in that first and last part of the sermon. But what I want to do is I want to speak to something. I want this time to be a time of examination of our hearts um, as we approach the Lord's Supper today. And so we will move straight from the sermon into the Lord's Supper, and we'll celebrate that together. Uh, but I want to talk on the subject of, of community. And I want to do so under the heading of that which we've just celebrated, the issue of independence. And I want to look at the first verses of the book of Philippians under the heading that it is time for you and I to declare our independence from independence. And I want to talk about that because I believe that's what got Samson in the trouble that he did. And it would be good for us to recognize that if we think we can live the Christian life on our own, we are fundamentally flawed in understanding of New Testament Christian, uh, Christian living. That the Christian life is to be lived as, in some ways, an individual. That is, that you don't get saved as a community of people, okay? Just because your church believes the right things doesn't mean you believe the right things. There is an individual aspect to our salvation. We have to come to a place where we repent of our sins, submit ourselves to the uh, ways of God, and, and uh, receive the, the blessings that came from the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. We've got to do that as an individual But when it comes to living the Christian life, we cannot think that we can do that on our own. We have to do that in community. And so I want to talk today about taking away that idea of our Christian independence and seeing that Christian community is something that was a hallmark to the early church and it should be a hallmark to Village Bible Church today. But sadly, this issue of community has lost its luster And in recent days, it has fallen in some ways on deaf ears, that that we as a people are too busy for the kind of community that the Bible is speaking about. So I want to give you a definition, and I'm going to just have you write kind of wherever you want on your outline, but put this definition down. We're going to leave it up for a little bit, but this is what we're wanting to get to. Biblical community is a group of diverse people who sacrificially love each other. They are united through a common joy in and a commitment to sharing and living and being changed daily by the life and love of Christ as one body. So we're different people who come together and we love sacrificially. Well, where do we learn that? We learn that from Jesus. And so we're a group of people who come from all different places and all different backgrounds and different colors and different experiences, and we come together, and what unites us is not a sports team or a political party or a socioeconomic status or, or some uh, certain uh, ideal or desire that we have in our lives. We are a people who come together under the banner of Jesus Christ under the authority of God's word, and we come together united as a group, filled with joy, with joy in in, in a couple different ways. Joy, first of all, in the work that Christ has done in my own life, and the joy to experience that work that Christ has done in my own life with others who have experienced that same thing. And so I'm excited about my own walk with Christ, and I'm excited to see how Christ is working in and through you. And so we have a commitment together to sharing that and living that out and being changed by that and doing it as a body on a daily basis. That's the goal of what every church should have when it comes to community. And I don't think we're there. 
And I'm going to give you some reasons why I think that Village Bible Church is a great church, but a church that seemingly maybe has lost some of this as their pursuit. And I want to talk about it and remind us of some truths but to give you a text to help us kind of understand where, where we're going with this definition. By the way, I don't have any citing for this because it's my definition. So you can say it stinks and that's fine. Um, no smart person put it together, just your pastor, okay? But this is what I believe is what a careful exposition of Hebrews. So it just holding your uh, finger, if you with, with your finger, the book of Philippians, turn to the right to the book of Hebrews for a moment. Where do we get this definition? How do we uh, see this lived out in the church? Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. If you, don't have that, if you have that pew Bible in front of you, page 1007 is the, is the pew Bible page. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. So leave that definition up there, and hopefully you'll get a chance to jot that down and, and kind of flesh that out in your week to come. But here's where I get this definition. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's stop there for a moment. We cannot have biblical community with one another until we have biblical community with the God who has saved us. And so biblical community cannot happen amongst a bunch of unsaved people. Biblical community begins with a person having a right relationship with God. And so what begins is the process that we have come into community with God because of the work of Jesus Christ, and we do so with a desire that we are united with Christ, we are sharing in a common joy of what Christ has done in and through us, and as a result of that, we're being changed by that. And that's what the first part of the book of Hebrews says. But without skipping a beat, the writer of Hebrews reminds us of a truth that here in the American church we forget, because a lot of us will say, yeah, I've got community with God. Yes, I've got a great relationship with God. I have a friend in Jesus. But the writer of Hebrews seems to say, you cannot have a friend in Jesus if you don't also have a friend in your brothers and sisters in Christ, who you are living life together with. You cannot have biblical community with God without also having biblical community with the brothers and sisters of Christ around you. The book of 1 John tells us that we cannot say we love God and hate our brother. And so to be able to love God in the way he's called us to means that we have to love our brothers and sisters and serve them and and, and fellowship with them just as we serve and fellowship the God we have. Now notice that, again, without skipping a beat, he moves to this community of one another. He says, and now let us consider how to stir up one another towards loving good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so community begins with God, but it ends with people. It begins with my relationship with God, but it overflows in my relationship with you, a people. And I can't say I've got a great relationship with God and not have a great relationship with you. That is what is different between our relationships with one another 
and other earthly relationships that are going on with people and our neighbors and our friends and family who don't know Jesus. The relationship that we have with God should transform our relationships with one another. It should transcend the the dialogues that we have. It should change the way we counsel one another. It should change the way we spend time with one another. It should create uh, a level of excitement and a level of intimacy that this world on its own would never be able to find. It should transform the way we relate to each other as a family. But we don't. When we look at our relationships and our communications for the most part, if we were to, to mic up our, our conversations in the foyer, if we were to mic up our conversations when we gather together as a people, for the most part, what I have sensed and, and what in conversations with others have sensed is that our conversations are not much different. Maybe the language is a little bit cleaner. Maybe the jokes aren't as coarse. Uh, maybe, um, you know, there, there may be uh, some, some things of value to talk about, things that are quote-unquote noble things. But at the end of the day, our conversations, our relationships are not much different, are of no more depth than that of our secular friends and and family members. Why is that? I'm going to give you two enemies to what I think is, is going on to us as a community of believers. And I want to tell you, while I don't know why community may not be a thing within the church outside of America, because I I don't live there. I do know what happens within America, and I want to use what we've just celebrated as a reminder while something is great for a nation, it may not be all that great for us as a church. You see, for the 4th of July, we celebrate the birth of a nation. 1776, the founding fathers threw off the chains of tyranny, and they told the king, you can't tell us what to do. We uh, understand and believe the notion that all men should be free and unencumbered by anyone else. Phrases in in the days of the revolution uh, were things like, give me liberty or give me death. Don't tread on me. And other incredible slogans that are not only, not only were commonplace then, but as you will hear more and more, they're commonplace today. We want a nation that is free, where we can do what we want and dream about the things and have nothing come to encumber our pursuit of those things. But let me tell you plainly that what things that make for a great nation don't always make for a great church. And I'm here to create a dichotomy this morning that while I believe in the message of independence for us as a nation, if we take that and extrapolate that and put that into the context of the church, we will fail miserably at living up to what the New Testament says about community. You see, the church stands opposed to this idea of independence. A church understands, and Christians more than anybody should understand, that you and I are not only dependent on God and Christ, but also on our brothers and sisters, those whom we fellowship. And we are to do so, as the New Testament says, through the unity of the Spirit, through the bond of peace. And yet that is the very thing that we as Christians don't do in regards to our community. Why is it? There are two enemies I want you to see. Number one, the first enemy for us as Americans is this ideal of individuality. Individuality, okay? We want to be our own individual, and Americans see that as a birthright. Now the dictionary defines individualism as the following. The leading of one's life in one's own way, 
without regard for others. Let's just stop there for a moment and think about that. It is the leading of one's life, one's own way, without regard for others. For many in this place, you are living an individualistic life. And I'm not saying that because you're hurting all these other people around you. You are just focused in on doing what you're doing and you're doing it your way. And just everybody stay out of my way. I'll I'll leave everybody else alone. I'm doing my own thing. The problem is the church as a community will always be opposed to that kind of individualism. And yet it is so prevalent in our society. To illustrate this, when advising foreign exchange students, University of Pennsylvania, or Penn University, gives the following snapshot to foreign exchange students understanding American culture. And number one on their uh, picture or snapshot of what American culture looks like is the following statement. Go ahead and flip that. Probably the most important thing to understand about Americans is their devotion to individualism. Since childhood, Americans are encouraged to see themselves as individuals responsible for their own destiny, not as a member of any collective group. Many Americans believe that the ideal person is an autonomous, self-reliant individual. They generally do not prefer being dependent on other people or having others dependent on them. Americans have a desire for personal success, both social and economic, And many do not consider social and cultural factors as insurmountable barriers to their ability to get ahead. One result of this attitude is the competitiveness of the American society. This pursuit for personal achievement is a dominant motivation in American life, and this can lead to a not-so-friendly competition. Now let me nuance that for a minute. In some ways, that's exactly what makes America an exceptional country. Okay? That's why we invent things like no other country in the world. But when we bring it into the church realm and a bunch of American Christians get into a place where it's all about them, the church fails to live out its commission to love one another as Christ has called us to do. And so individuality is a problem. And so we gather into this place and as a church we sit within these pews And it's business as usual. It's about me. It's about my desires and my wants. And and, and what is the church doing for me? Are they meeting my my desires and my my stated goals for, for my attendance at a place? Instead of looking at what the church can do for me, the church should be a place that looks to do things for others. How can I come into this place and encourage a brother and sister? When was the last time we were, were preparing our hearts for worship and said, Lord, I want you to put me in a situation this morning in church where I can be a blessing to somebody? That, Lord, you've given me a wonderful week, and I want to be an encouragement to someone who's having an absolutely terrible week. I want to get into their lives and and help them and and show them what what hope they can have in Christ. When do we spend time in our fellowship interacting by asking the question, what can I do for someone else? And you see today in the churches, people come as a result from the vantage point of a consumer, meeting their taste and their preferences instead of participating as part of the body. 
As a result, this individualistic thinking deforms our thinking about the church. And it goes directly in opposition to the Lord's greatest command to love one another as oneself. So the above description about us as Americans cannot be the attitude of the church member here at Village Bible Church. It's just, it, it is opposed. The church has to be opposed to that kind of individualism. Because the nature of the church, listen, is to be love. And where there's love, there will be union. And where there's union, there will be fellowship. And where there's fellowship, there will always be interdependence. And where there's interdependence, there is not the self-imposed isolation and indifference to others. So if you want to live the isolated, independent Christian life apart from the church, what you are doing is ripping up whole sections of the New Testament and saying, I am living it in contrary to what the Bible says. There is no I in New Testament Christianity. There's no I. It's all team. It's all together. But notice the second thing that does it. So maybe it's not your issue of individualism. Write this down. The second enemy to community is insecurity. And this one's quite simple. You and I have a big fear of admitting that we have issues, that we have frailties, that we have flaws, that, might I add, we have sins. Now, the absolute idiocy of this as Christians is that we believe in a doctrine called total depravity. And so we believe this doctrine to be so imperative to our understanding of, of our view of anthropology, of, of, of the study of man, that, that we believe that and the Bible clearly teaches that you and I were not only conceived in sin, but total depravity says, and I want to nuance this a little bit, total depravity doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be, okay? We're not all Hitlers, we're not all Joseph Stalins, we're not all mass murderers, okay? We're not as bad as we could be, but what total depravity means is that every part of our being has been affected by sin. And so here's, again, the idiocy of it all, is that we're afraid to talk about our sin even though we believe we all are carrying these sins in our lives. So, so let me give you an example. I believe with all my heart that every fiber of my being has been touched with sin. Every part. There's not a part of Tim Badal that hasn't been impacted by the sinful nature that is not waging war against the spiritual change that has happened through regeneration in my life. But here's what we do. So I believe that. I have no problem admitting that. So we come to church, and someone says, how was your week? To which we respond, great, wonderful. Everything's going just fine. Don't ask me about my relationship with God, because I didn't spend a, a lick of time in his word. Don't ask me about my relationship with my wife. We haven't really been married, if you will, in the sense of being in love with one another for years don't ask me about my kids because, God help me, I wanted to sling them up with a noose, okay? I just want to be done with them. Don't ask me about my job because I have stolen and I've stealed and I've connived and I've, and I've uh, made my employee, fellow employees' lives miserable. I'm the most hated guy in the office because I am a cutthroat guy. Don't ask me about that. Don't ask me about my mouth because I can't tell you how many four-letter words have come out of my mouth. Don't ask me about my temper or my anger because I might just get angry with you and do something that you might regret. Don't ask me about any of that. Just take the word that I, who am a sinner, who have been touched by sin in every facet of my life, am telling you as I lie through my teeth, I'm fine, how are you? 
To which you say, I'm good too. And we do this knowing that if we say something, we will break the cardinal rule of Christianity, and that is confess sins one to another. How do I know it? Because I've been in groups where some sorry lug thinks that he can be transparent. And he gets within a group of people and he says, you know, can I just shoot straight with you? Can I be honest with you guys? No, no, you shouldn't. Okay? But he's going to anyway because he doesn't know any better. It's usually a young believer. And that yet person says, hey, yeah, you're not going to believe what I was looking at at the computer this week. You're not going to believe what I saw this week or, or my entertainment choices. You're not going to believe what came out of my mouth. And you know what happens when that is said? Nothing. The air flows out of the room. Well, the only thing that's said is a spouse looks to another spouse. Let's make sure we don't have coffee with them. Let's stay away from them. Let's make sure our kids don't hang out with them. And we're quiet because they've broken the rule. They've broken the rule that we as Christians should be transparent with one another and that when the Bible says confessing sins one to another is not a suggestion but a command. And then you say, well, well if I say something... I'll be gossiped about. If I say something, I'll be judged. If I say something, people will have uh, wrong thoughts about me. That is why your preacher is preaching a message about community. Because for that to take place, you and I must become responsible people with regards to how we relate and communicate with people. That we recognize before we judge that we take the speck out of our eye, I'm sorry, the log out of our eye before we look at the speck of someone else's eye. And that we build a community of love and grace and mercy. Being willing to speak the truth in love when necessary. But this is what we've got to get to. We've got to stop being so individualistic. We've got to be so in, stop being so insecure and start understanding that unless I get involved in community with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I will never reach the full potential of what God has for me. So God has given me the antidote. He's given me a group of people who recognize they themselves are sinners just like I am. They recognize that they're in need of a Savior just as I do. They rejoice in the fact that Jesus comes and does not condemn us, but, but shows us grace and mercy, and we can rejoice together. And so when someone says, I'm blowing it, I'm messing up, I cannot fix this thing on my own, they receive love and grace and mercy and truth that directs them to freedom in Christ. So why don't we do it? Because our culture says not to. So now what do we do? We don't look to culture, we look to God's word. So now let's look at the book of Philippians. Let's look to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Again, on page 980 is your pew Bible page. And here's what Paul says about this issue of community. He says, Paul and Timothy in verse 1, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers or elders and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's stop there. Paul has just communicated, beginning this letter, about joy. Now let me give just a little bit of feedback to what is going on. Paul is under house arrest. Paul can't go anywhere. And Paul is sitting and not able to do the ministry because he's in chains. And the Philippian church hears about this. And they are so in love with Paul and so much badly wanting to minister to this guy, that they send a gift of money and one of their best people, Epaphroditus, to go and hang with Paul what is what many believe to be months. And so Epaphroditus takes the money and he goes and hangs with the Apostle Paul. And now Paul is writing and he's saying, in the worst situation, the only thing that is overflowing in me is not anger or, or despondency or, or questions or anxiety. The only thing that wells up in me as I write to the Philippians is joy. The word joy comes out over and over and over again. How is that? It is because he recognizes what he says in verse 6 of chapter 1. That Jesus, who began the good work in you, is faithful to see it to the day of completion. And so we agree, praise God, this, that's awesome. God is going to, and we use this verse as, as a great verse and a reminder of our eternal security that God is going to see us uh, from the point of justification all the way to the point of glorification. That which he talks about uh, in, in Romans chapter 8. And this great chain of salvation. But the question we don't ask is, how does Jesus do that? Paul points to that the way that Jesus finishes the work of sanctification in our life and brings us joy amidst severe trials and tribulations is the partnership with other believers. And so that's what I'm trying to get to is that if you think you can live the Christian life on your own and reach your full potential in Christ, you're fooling yourself because Paul says, the reason why I have joy, the reason why I know God is going to be faithful is because I see God's hand working in your lives and as a result of that, I'm being made more like Christ. And so what does that tell us this morning? It tells us what my first point is. And that is you and I must embrace the, the right partnerships. We must embrace the right partnerships. Now, we can embrace a lot of partnerships. We can embrace a lot of friendships. But Paul says that there is a partnership here on earth that is so vital to the Christian walk that we better grab a hold of it. And notice what he says. That partnership is with who? It is to all the saints in Christ Jesus. But notice, not just all of them, wherever they may be, Paul makes it abundantly clear. It is to all the saints in Christ Jesus. That's the invisible church. 
But that's not who the partnership is with. Who are at Philippi. So Paul says, yeah, you can have friendships and you can have fellowship uh, with the universal church. And how true is that? That you come into contact with somebody out of the blue and you can just feel in your heart and spirit, the spirit of God is in their life. And then you find out their testimony and there's right away a, a, a connecting of your heart to theirs. That's the spirit of God working. But what I'm talking about is not that community with the invisible church that's there. But what I'm talking about is what Paul is saying, the community that happens within the visible church, the local church at Philippi, at Sugar Grove, wherever you have that local assembly happening. Notice it's under the the oversight of elders and deacons. It's a collective group of people. And so notice what he says about this partnership. Notice, first of all, the word partnership is the Greek word koinonia. Many of you, that's one of the only Greek words you know. Koinonia means fellowship. And fellowship uh, gives the idea, it's used in multiple ways in first century Greek uh, times. It was used to speak of the fellowship that a husband and wife could have, speaking that this was an intimate fellowship. It also spoke of a practical element of this fellowship. This, this word fellowship, koinonia, would be used of a, a team of rowers, Um, on a ship who would row in the same rhythm and in the same direction and towards the same goal. And so it's an intimate relationship where we are working together towards a common goal and purpose with the same goal in mind. And so Paul says, okay, we're in partnership of what? He says, in the gospel, We're in the gospel, and this is what our calling is. So here we are as Village Bible Church gathered together, and we're gathered together not because we're Sox fans or Cub fans or or because of a political party. We're here under the banner of Jesus Christ and the gospel of him going to the cross and dying for our sins. But what is that relationship, that community to look like? A couple things I want you to highlight. Number one, they're all it's all inclusive. It's all-inclusive. Notice there are no less than three times, three times in 11 verses where Paul says, as he says in verse 4, my prayer for you all. In verse 7, for you are all partakers. In verse 8, how I yearn for you all. I want you to understand that community is not something where you come in and gather within the local church and you've got a couple friends, that you've got a couple people that you really like. You know, I, can, I don't need to know anybody else. I've, I've got my little group of friends. I, I don't need any more friends. Biblical community is I'm going to involve all into it. Now, I want to be careful to nuance this. Does that mean that we will all have the same level of friendship with all people? No, we know that not to be true. But what it does not mean, what he's saying is, is that in these verses, when Paul's writing, notice he doesn't say, and I write to you, George, Sally, and Ben, you're great. Church at Philippi, make sure that they hear that. He doesn't say that. He says, church, all of you, I love you. All of you, I'm praying for you. All of you, I'm, I'm hoping and, and holding you accountable to the things that God has for his people. And so notice what that means. Community within a local church setting cannot be plagued by cliques. Community in the biblical sense 
can have zero racism or bigotry. Community within the New Testament church cannot have favoritism. It must hold all people, both men and women, slave or free, Jew or Greek, in the same high standard because we are all one in the same with Christ Jesus. In the 21st century, you would think we would have gotten over this, but we haven't. There are some of us who who look at people and their outsides, and we have already determined what level of relationship we'll have based on that instead of the power of God working in their lives. So what does that then mean? It then moves to then, we can't just have a high regard for people within our community. We must also then move to action. Write that down. It must move to action. It's not, well, I just think great thoughts of you guys. No, notice that the book of Philippians is love in action. What it means is is we've got the, the church of Philippi seeing this high regard for Paul. They think the best of Paul. And what do they do? They send him things that will relieve his suffering. And notice what they do. They send Epaphroditus with their money to have Epaphroditus go and spend months in jail. That's community. You and I will not experience community until we put ourselves in the lives of others. Epaphroditus got it. If I'm going to know Paul, then I have to know Paul in that prison cell. I have to know Paul in his turmoil and in his struggle and in his pain. If you read the rest of the book of Philippians, you will see that Epaphroditus struggles so much to understand Paul's struggles that Epaphroditus himself is near death at the end of the book of Philippians. It's gotten bad for him. And has he quit? Has he given up? No, because he loves Paul. And he loves his church. And he wants to serve God. And so we as a people have to recognize that to be in community with one another, we ought to be in one another's lives. What's the example of that? It's Jesus, John 1.14. And the word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. Jesus got up close and personal. He, he came and, and got involved in our garbage so that he might have communion with us. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't just send a, uh, a little uh, um, candy gram? That was what I was looking for. Candy gram? Ah, oh, you guys are in sin. You're on your way to hell. Good luck. No. But God demonstrated his love for us in this. How did God create community? He sent Jesus Christ to die for us. He sacrificed. And that same sacrifice and that same love that Jesus shows us is the same sacrifice that Jesus calls us to show one another. And so it's going to involve action. It's going to involve movement. And so we've got the Philippians sharing their love to Paul. And now Paul writing back and saying, in every prayer, at every moment, I'm thinking of you all. Let me ask this question this morning. Is that kind of action evident in your life when you are thinking about the people of this church? Let me ask another question. Is your love, is your uh, community filled with affection, love? That's the next one. 
Look at Paul, how he speaks to these people. It is right to me to feel this way in verse 7, he says, about you all, because I hold you in my heart. He says in verse 8, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So let's start with the issue of the heart. You're on my heart, he says. So what does community look like? It is not something where we just get together and and shoot the breeze and, and, and call it a day. It is where men and women in our lives are so important to us that they uh, are in our hearts. That word heart is not a good translation. Literally what it means is um, I have you and I'm thinking of you from my bowels. A little uglier. But it gets to the point. The very essence of who I am, to the depths of, of who I am, I love you. Is that defined how your love is for the people that are sitting around you? Do you hold them in your heart? That that begs the question, are you praying for them? Again, are you preparing your hearts when your gathering time is? is, I want to serve them. I want to take the towel and basin and I want to wash their feet. I want to give whatever I have to to help them in their time of need. I, I want to serve them as Christ has served me. If we desire to be a church of community... And to do it biblically, we have to have a deep and profound love and concern for each other. And sadly, because of our society, even here within a great church like Village, our feelings at many times can only be skin deep and surface level. But until we plumb the depths of who we are and reach to the depths of where others find themselves, we will never experience biblical community. Next. It involves accountability. You see, right before you think that it's just biblical community is loving and singing kumbaya, you need to understand that community has a purpose. Paul gives us this purpose in verses 9 through 11. Notice, he says, all right, I love you and I believe in you. And because of those two things, I expect some things from you. Isn't that true of our relationship with Christ? God loves us. He meets our needs, and he doesn't say, all right, you you don't have to do anything else. No. He says, I've I've died for you. I've paid the price of sin. Now live for me. As Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not hope that you have salvation with fear and trembling. No, you've got the salvation. Now work that salvation out. Live in such a way that you recognize the manifest cost that it took for saving us from our sins, now live differently. And so Paul does that. I love you. I'm here to serve you. And by serving you, I'm going to call you out with some aspects of accountability. What are some of the accountable things? Notice what he asks in his prayer. Number one, he asks the question, Philippians, I pray that your love may abound more and more. How are you loving one another, he's asking. Now, Paul knows right away that their love is not abounding. It's abounding in some ways, but not in all ways. How do I know that? Because Philippians 4 tells us that two women are fighting. And they're fighting, and it's gotten so bad that the church has been pulled into this conflict. And as a result of that, there's all kinds of struggles. And so Paul says, hey, make sure your love is abounding. And so what you need to be holding one another accountable, we all need to be holding each other accountable, is how are we loving So men, are you asking, how are you loving your wife? Women, asking, how are you loving your husband? 
Parents asking each other, how are you loving your kids? How are you loving the unbelievers in your life? How are you loving the enemies? Is the work of Christ causing your love to abound more and more? That should be a part of our fellowship. We should also be asking the question, is our knowledge for God increasing? He goes on in his prayer. That our knowledge would increase. So let me ask you, when was the last time you asked someone or someone asked you, what did you learn this week from God's word? What did you learn from your study? We're followers of Jesus Christ, and God's written this love letter to us. What have we learned from it? How have we been changed by it? In what ways has has studying God's word caused us to be more discerning, wiser? Notice Paul goes on, and he says, he asks the question, that, that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. And so accountability begs the question, it asks the question, what are you doing? with the righteousness of Christ in and through you? How are you serving? How are you giving? How are you uh, using your time for the furtherment of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Those are the questions we need to ask when we're in community with one another and be willing to ask those hard questions and speak the truth in love. So as we remember these things, notice... As we come to communion, do I love all those that are a part of this local assembly? Is my love moving me to action? Is, is the partnership that I have with my fellow brothers and sisters at Village Bible Church an affectionate one? And not just skin deep, but plums the depths of who I am. And, and is it moving me to hold people accountable? You see, as we approach communion, we have to ask the question, are we living this way? And I would say, as much as I love this church, no. This is not how we're loving. And we've got a lot of room to grow, and I believe we're capable of it, but how do I know it? Because our love and our community for one another, if that was the case, then we would never have to talk about how we're in a deficit from a financial standpoint. Because we would understand that, that it's not just me showing up to church, that's community. It's about me and my time, my talent, my treasures that are a part of this community so the furtherment of the gospel can take place because I'm not going to hold it back for myself in my individualistic, insecure life. I'm going to give generously because God says it's better to give than to receive. And so I'm going to give that way. If community was going on at Village Bible Church, Stephanie would not get up this morning and say, we don't have anybody signed up. Okay? Why? Because we're busy. Because we want to keep our schedules clear for my time and and, and all that. Who cares about the kids of the community? It's about me. If community was what it was all about, the parking lot would be filled at 8 o'clock because we're excited to get together and fellowship with one another. We'd be so excited to be here. Now, does that mean we're void of all fellowship? No, you guys, in many ways, we are a wonderful church and I'm blessed to be a part of it. But we can do better, can't we? Isn't there a part of the American culture that maybe has seeped in a little more than it should? And on this day or this weekend of independence that we might throw the the chains of that kind of isolation off? Well, how do we do it? There are three things I want us to be thinking about as we approach the table. Number one, 
if we're going to get to this kind of community, go down to the points to ponder at the very end of the outline. What it then means is we got to stop masking the real you with makeup. Stop faking. Understand that we all recognize we're sinners. And let's start talking about the struggles we have, the fears, the anxieties, the difficulties we have in raising our kids, the difficulties we have in our marriages, the difficulties we have with temptation. Let's start being real with one another and transparent with one another so that we can serve one another and love one another and give the truth of God's word to one another. Stop putting on the mask and show the real you who Jesus sees. We all need to do this. One of the benchmarks of my preaching, which is not always popular amongst preachers, is that I'm very transparent in the pulpit. And I do that so that you guys can say, well, man, if my pastor can do it, then I can do it. If he can do it in front of you know, 650, 700 people on a Sunday, then why can't I do it with my small group? I hope you know that. Number two. As we approach communion, we must recognize the me mentality must die. Our churches are filled with people who are looking for a church that meets their needs. What does that look like? We look at church and we ask the question, is it catering to my wants, my desires, my needs? Does it have the programs? Does it play my style of music? Does it preach my kinds of messages? Does it have my kinds of people? Does it have what I am looking for? Church, let me tell you something very clear. This worship time is not about you or I. It's about God and his glory. So what do you look for in a church? Is the triune name of God being exalted? Is the word of God being um, exegeted? Meaning, is it being, is it being studied and, and proclaimed? Is the equipping of us as Christians taking place? And is there the evangelization of the lost? Outside of that, I'm sure there are other important things. But we make looking for a church all about us and not about God. Asking the question, am I here for me or am I here to serve and honor God by serving and honoring others? One final thing is the issue of membership. And I will say as a pastor that membership matters. And so... You say, Tim, well, what, what do you mean? That you, okay, community, now you bring up the issue of membership. Isn't that kind of a man-made thing? Well, it was in the church in the book of Acts, and it's still around today. And we know in the book of Acts that they were able to add to their number. And so there was a number. There was a select group of people that were added to that church uh, each and every time the gospel was presented. And so there was this group of people that had uh, come to a certain place and to a certain set of ideals that they were in agreement with. Our church does the same thing. And my question to you is, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as one who attends here on a regular basis, not for the person that's brand new, but to those who attend on a regular basis, have you ever thought of the importance that membership plays in this issue of community? Here's what I mean. Membership here at the church is not like you become a platinum card member, okay? 
You don't get any perks. Just I, That may ruin the deal for you. We don't pay you anything. You don't get any, any perks. It's not like all of a sudden you get the best pew to sit in or anything like that or the coffee we give is any better we give anyone else. It's none of that. What membership is at Village Bible Church is a common agreement to pursue this kind of unity within this body. So what it says is, I'm going to pursue Christ, not in isolation, but in community. And I'm going to do so when it's easy, when it's fun, when it's uh, in times of rejoicing. And I'm also going to do it when it's difficult. I'm going to allow people in my life to call out sin when they see it. And I'm going to welcome that. I'm going to welcome, listen, I'm going to welcome the discipline of the church. If, if the church collectively says, Tim, you're in sin, I'm welcoming that. Because it is not about me, but it's about the glory of God in my life. And, and the church does so through, through its discipline. And so I, I'm okay with that. And, and, and so if you're not a member of this church... I implore you to, to go to God and ask, why not? Why not? What, what is holding me back? And I would implore you not to do it for any perks. There really isn't any, as I've already said. But to do it because you're joining in community as a Christian. You're a Christian. If you're not a member of Village Bible, you still can be a Christian. But you're a Christian who's living outside of real Local church community, which the New Testament talks about over and over again. And I would ask of you this week to examine if you've attended this church for any amount of time, why I'm unwilling, for whatever reason, to not pursue membership. Because it is there where we commit to this common unity in Christ. So, that then brings us to what's before me. And that is the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a reminder of the community that we need to have. And right away, many of us will say, well, yes, the Lord's Supper is about community with my relationship with God. And so when I examine myself, as Paul tells me to do, I always am examining my relationship with God. What sins have I confessed? Lord, I, 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 I looked at something I shouldn't have. Or Lord, I, I said something I shouldn't have. Please forgive me. I don't want to take your Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. But what we don't think about is that the Lord's Supper is celebrated in community. Have you ever noticed that the Lord's Supper isn't to be served in your kitchen by yourself? In your by yourself, just do the Lord's Supper and, and do that. No, it was done in the gathering of God's people in community. Here's the thing. Communion is a compound word of common unity. And it's not just common unity with God, but it's also common unity with our fellow men and women. And so what I want to use this time of examination, I'm going to ask the servers to come down, I'm going to ask the musician uh, to come that are going to play, and I want to use our time of examination to ask the question, am I in communion with those around me? Or is there an independence to me? Am I living in isolation? Am I living in insecurity? Are there things in my life that I'm unwilling? Are there people in my life I'm unwilling to commune with and to ask and seek forgiveness? And I pray that after this is all done that you would be quick then to go make right. That person that you always are skirting away from that you don't want to talk to because you don't like them or, or the things they talk about just aren't all that fulfilling to you. Take this time and ask the question this morning, am I in community with one another? And if you're not, Start confessing that sin and then be quick to go make right, remembering what Christ has done for us.